As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we are back with America's favorite podcast. Keep it. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. No idea where you called those statistics, but I'm going to go ahead and believe it. <laughs> this is coming out after July 4th, Louis. You should be listening to Keep It while firing up bratwurst, hot dogs, sauerkraut, um, potato salad. Put all of it on the grill. You know, yes. grill your potato salad. And then guess what toppings I put on it? Nothing. I like it plain. <laughs> oh, actually, shocked. for the 4th of July, I do have a recommendation. <laughs> if I haven't brought this up before, the 30 for 30 on American Gladiators, which is my favorite red, white, and blue enterprise of all time. Very good. I think we're getting another American Gladiators documentary on Netflix, but this, and this one is uh, curiously missing a few key gladiators, but it's both awesome and devastating. You won't believe what has happened to some of these people who are like injured in ways you never knew about. Um, but the stories are fabulous, fascinating, et cetera. Mm. Uh, I've actually never seen that one. So I think I won't Just watch came it. Out. I've never so, been yeah. a big, I've never been a big 30 for 30 person, to be honest. M- me neither. I, I I can only think of a couple. I've, I've seen the one about Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Like it has to be about personalities and also frankly, women for me to care. I just, if you're on a team your entire career, that's not fun. You're not a celebrity. You're part of a pack. I I do love the Henry Hill episode. Henry Hill, as in of Goodfellas fame? Yes, yes. He like did the point shaving for like Boston College. Oh, that's might be like because Ray, because Ray no Liotta played no Ray Liotta oh, played did. him in Goodfellas, um, and so like Ray Liotta narrates it too. Like I watched it because of like the Goodfellas and Liotta fame. Um, I was thinking about Ray Liotta this week because I w- randomly I didn't rewatch it, but I almost rewatched Corona Corona, a movie that <laughs> should come up a little bit more often. Uh, uh, I, I remember the era that's is, uh, t- Tina Majorino. Uh, uh, pre yeah. um, Napoleon pre Dynamite. Yes. And Roswell. Correct. Also, Ray Liotta. Remember when one of the last things we made him do was that show Shades of Blue with J-Lo? <laughs> he's one of That's those people that him. like we love, but also took every, like, just, <laughs> he's like Eric Roberts. He just has to be in a hundred things, you know? Yeah. Um, well, speaking of people who've been in a hundred things, um, our first guest this week, we have two guests this week. Uh, our first guest this week is Hari Neff, uh, who's tr- literally been in like every buzzy TV show of the past few years almost, 
Right. No, she only stars in Twitter trending topics. <laughs> uh, and then our second guest is Alex Edelman, uh, who has a fantastic one-man show just for us on Broadway um, currently. And yeah, this originated as a, a smaller show, was extended a whole bunch of times, and now it's on Broadway. I mean, how many comedians can say they've taken a show to Broadway? It's really a staggering accomplishment for him. Um, don't you remember my um, 1992 run at the <laughs> Sam O'Neill Theater, Lewis? And it came to blows with Rita Rudner. She punched you right in the face. She said, this is my space. It was just me reading um, Mansfield Park. That was the one-man show. It was me reading it out loud and reacting. Oh, which I would not like to see, I have to say. But um, <laughs> I always think about Mansfield Park because there's a, a section of the movie Metropolitan, which I bring up all the time in the show, about Mansfield Park where two characters are debating whether it's good. And then one of the characters admits eventually, oh, I just read about the book. I've never read the book. And so, anyway, <laughs> it's, it, it's, like the, it's the best part of that movie where the person you're talking to who you think is this, like, chic intellectual is this, like, Proud poser, anyway. Go and watch Metropolitan. It's on Max. Okay, but also, isn't that the epitome of having an argument with anybody online? Right. You have no idea who these people are. Yes. You're arguing about a movie or TV show, and then most of the time they don't reveal or they, they kind of accidentally reveal or something, but it's like they've never seen the thing that you're arguing about. So it's like, what the fuck are we doing here? No, right. You you just you you take it in good faith that the person who jumped up uh to be heard is on the level with you. But that's not how it just it that's not how the internet works, honey. Pay attention. Yeah, you're you're arguing the best Spike Lee films, but they've only seen clockers. <laughs> right. <laughs> they mispronounce Chirac. They don't even know it's yeah. <laughs> it's actually pronounced Chirac. <laughs> yes, it's about the French president. <laughs> um, all right, well, we've got two interviews for you this week, and uh, they're pretty good, if I say so myself. So I love both of them. They they take wild turns there, um, but not circuitously. They explore a lot of ground. We talk about John Waters. We talk about... Um, Susan Sontag versus Camille Paglia. We talk about Brian Adams, and we don't even have Mandy Moore here. So, and you, and you mean Ryan twist. Adams? Oh yeah, Ryan Adams. Do you think Ryan Adams is so angry because people just always say think he's Brian Adams? Oh no! Well, he, he in concert used to perform "Summer of '69" because people would jokingly shout it out, and also he would get mixed up with that name all the time. Mm, so maybe that's his villain origin story. I. It honestly could be. <laughs> uh, all right. We will be right back with Hari Neff. Our guest today is the moment right now. She is a prolific writer, a groundbreaking model, and an iconic actress known for truly everything. Transparent, you... Uh, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and just like that, currently the idol. And now she's a doctor, because you can catch her next in the world's new favorite movie, Barbie, out on July 21st. We're so happy to have her here. Please welcome to Keep It, Hari Neff. Thank you for that introduction, (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, damn, my 20s were flashing before my eyes. (laughs) I love when I get to do the intro for people, but I love it when I get to do it for like people I already know. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just talk about everything you've done that I'm excited that you've been in. Um, And Barbie is... Everyone is talking about Barbie. First of all, say, it's everywhere. Are you, it's, like, are you intimidated by how much people are talking <laughs> about this movie? I can't think of a movie with more buildup in the past three years. Yeah, I mean, like, t- today, like, the time cover dropped, mm-hmm. and, like, my, like, Vogue, Seven Days, Seven Looks, just, like, I'm I'm dealing with, like, phone, and it, it's a lot of, I, I think I'm, I think this is really, like, the come to Jesus of, like, you need to change your relationship to the internet <laughs> now. <laughs> you need to stop reading the comments now. You need to stop name searching now, and you need to stop Googling yourself now, because this is scary. <laughs> it's also cool. It's, like, obviously, it's um more positive than negative across the board and if i weren't in the movie i would be like annoying and excited about the movie for sure (laughs) um but it's pretty overwhelming it's not like anything i've ever dealt with before um i you know i i usually think that hype is a killer i feel like you know the sway of public opinion is always a ping pong but i don't know I saw the movie. I've seen it. And it's really fucking fun. And <laughs> I it made me feel like a kid. And I don't think people will be disappointed. I think that it's fun that there's excitement around something that feels like monocultural. That's like pink and silly and vibrant and smart and kind of stupid and for the girls Mm -hmm. and you know i i feel like you usually encounter this decibel of hype around like you know like 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 a marvel movie that's like gray and like (laughs) fighting to save the world and this i mean this this feels like fab and like draggy and gay and like I love that people are excited about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you say, like, um, you know, this is like this precipice moment where you're like, let me like change my relationship with social media because, you know, everyone's so excited for this, um, which has to be such a funny contrast to whatever everyone writes about the idol every week. But do you see that? Or are you like, I don't even want to search the idol or what people have to say about my performance? Because we love you in it. You're so fun. Like, you have, like, the best <laughs> lines on the show. Thank you. I mean, the idol stuff, um, the idol stuff seems like it exists primarily kind of in this internet echo chamber, the way mm-hmm. people talk. I mean, obviously, it's not objective because the people that I talk to about the idol know that I'm in the idol, but I'm... Mm-hmm obviously able to have like a critical discourse with people in my life who aren't going to bullshit me. Mm-hmm. Um, the way people talk about the idol IRL is very different to the way they talk about it online. There are a lot of preconceived notions about like Sam and his other work. There are 
there's hysteria around sex. There's hysteria around Abel. There's like, there's so many pop stars in the, um, in the show. And people obviously have a lot of feelings about pop stars. It, I, I, I just think it's funny that the people who, you know, are very vocal about disliking the idol and, um, taking umbrage with its content are talking about it so much <laughs> they're watching it every week you know right so it, it, it's you know like people were trying to like kiki on sam about saying that he was gonna have the biggest show of the summer but like it is the biggest show of the summer because people are talking about it so much <laughs> if, 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 if people really wanted to shut it down they would just not talk about it and not watch it but they are watching and they are talking and i don't know like it's a TV show, babe. I welcome the interpretations. <laughs> I have my own thoughts, feelings, and opinions. But at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, a C-list actress who took a job and <laughs> like, hallelujah. <laughs> You're in the unique position to compare these two people. But I think of, first of all, like Greta Gerwig, as big as she gets, and as I would say, generally speaking, gets better and better as the years go on, has this... Mm unique very calming presence to me like she is not like a um enfant terrible in any way you know just i i i really um admired the the kind of uh i don't want to say poise but just like cool she emanates as she does everything whereas sam levinson has a vibe of you know it's like there's a general chaos and he rewrote these scripts whatever do these two creators have anything in common and what is your experience working with them oh wow that's a great question I think that both of them do a lot of divination during casting. Mm. I think that they, I, th- I, I think they have a lot of critical thought about casting. And once they've identified the thing that they are looking for in you, they trust you completely and will frequently kind of build things around you in your vibe. I mean, the role mm. of Talia was written for me. And that's iconic. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, because like I, I've worked with Sam before. I, 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 my first film was his Assassination Nation, which mm-hmm. came out in 2018. And Sam knows what my strengths are. He knows what my vibe is. And this is, you know, he slotted that into this role that needed to be filled. And Greta also has an immense trust of her actors. You know, obviously she's, you know, up there on film Twitter with like, you know, the up and coming legendaries of our day, auteur wise, but she she's not this like, you know, you 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 read about Stanley Kubrick on set or like what you know, like doing the take 78 times, or like, you know, David Lynch, who knows like exactly what color he wants somebody's socks to be, or like whatever. Like she she's it it she knows exactly what she's doing when she's doing it and how she's doing it, but it doesn't feel that way. She, especially for a comedy, like if she thinks you're funny, she thinks you're funny and she's going to let you rock. And, you know, I was definitely coming on as like a supporting actor and, you know, as a supporting actor, which is like what I've been doing, you have to pay attention to what the leads are doing. And so I was taking my cues from what Margot was giving, what Ryan was giving. And Ryan especially does every take a little different. Like he always hits his marks. He always says the line. Like he, he, he does everything you need to like check the boxes of effective screen acting, but he, 
he experiments and he deepens and he, I don't know, he, he's like the funniest actor I've ever worked with. And, and he, he, he tries different things every time and they just get funnier and funnier and funnier the more deeply you go into it. So, you know, I would start kind of standard and then I would kind of build and like by take like six or seven, like it would be weird and it would be booger. And like so <laughs> much of the booger actually made the book. <laughs> <laughs> like like from, from from the trailer like the like flat feet when i'm like screaming it at the top of my lungs with my like eyes rolling back that was like take seven or eight that was like a, what if i just like pumped it because there were <laughs> there were like 18 exclamation points in in the script for that and so i was like okay like i'm gonna play the 18 exclamation points I don't know, Gre- Greta creates an environment where nothing is off limits and she kind of just wants to see like especially for a comedy like this which is broad and playful she kind of just wants to see what loopy stuff you're gonna do because that's why you're here she's you know she she's not trying to shoehorn you into something and with sam like i feel like 50 percent of what actually made the cut i i was improving. we did so much improv they both have a trust of their actors which is not always the case mm. i love working with both of them genuinely Speaking of, you know, taking cues from, you know, like, and supporting them, you know, like, um, Margo and Ryan, um, I want to hear about working with this other icon that you worked with this year, because you know I saw you in The Seagull, uh, <laughs> and you were with Parker Posey. Oh, um, we were just talking about, yes. Yeah, um, we were just talking about Party Girl, this episode. Um, what was it like being, you know, in like a rehearsal space, being on stage, I guess, with her. I mean, Party Girl is one of the reasons I moved to New York. I know Parker mm-hmm. gets told that all the time. But, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> no, she she existed in such a like crystalline way in my head of, as this idea of like a New York girl, a New York actress, an indie stalwart. You know, somebody who was uncompromisingly her, who found a way to interface that with like a casting landscape, you know, somebody who isn't the normal proposition, you know, a scene stealer, like, you know, I I always look to her in that way, kind of like as a role model. And so getting into the room with her was really exciting. But when you get into a room with somebody, you have to kind of dispense with the idea of them and actually just treat them as a collaborator. And, you know, it, it, it took every, you know, like similar, but I was like, hiding in the bathroom stall, listening to SJ and Cynthia do the yes. scene as Carrie and Miranda. <laughs> the greatest acting work I ever had to do in my life was telling myself that I was not listening to Carrie, that, that, that I was not listening to, like, these queens, that I was actually listening to two women in a bathroom that I didn't know. <laughs> like that, <laughs> that took every ounce of acting class I ever had. So, like, I got into the room, clean slate, this is Parker. She's playing Irina or Irene in that case for the adaptation that we were in. Um, I mean, I don't, Parker, she's, she's that she, you know, like she, she has a very specific process. She, she brought a lot of her own props. She, mm. she's very into props. She's kind of method in a way. I'm not method at all. So I, I was just like, you know, and it, but again, she's the lead. So I'm, it was just fun to volley with her and kind of 
go on her trip, especially with that one big scene we had together where she was like, you know, swiring me around the stage, informing me that I like wasn't fab (laughs) and like telling me to stand up straight. And, you know, she, she takes control in that scene and I just get to follow her and be enthralled by her because she's playing this famous actress. So like, honey, like what acting did I really have to do? Like Parker Posey Mm -hmm. is there telling me how to be fab. And I am me on that stage taking whatever she's going to kick at me. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, obviously it's not like an intuitive fit Parker Posey doing checkup. But then I think of all the movies she did and it's like, no, she makes herself an organic fit. You just think like, oh, this needed that specific. It's like when Drew Barrymore is in a movie or something. It's like, you can't make this person up. There's only one of this person and now they belong because that's the energy they bring. Um, So I'm glad, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm also intrigued with you as a writer. I mean, going forth, you have all these like huge, um, acting projects. How important is it for you to keep writing as uh, the years go on and your acting career, you know, balloons? I think it's absolutely essential if you are doing or working in any industry that is contingent on you getting picked to have something else that you can do by yourself and for yourself. And for me, that is writing. And obviously with like, you know, capital W writing, you know, you you want to get published or et cetera, et cetera. Like there are still gates that are kept in that regard, but I can sit down to write and, you know, alone here in my apartment in in a way that I um, can't really sit down to act. What am I going to do? Like a monologue in the corner with myself? No, like when (laughs) when, when I'm not acting. Well, (laughs) well, yes. Um, No. um, I, the uh, Hari uh, Hour. I would watch it. Yeah, <laughs> on PBS. <laughs> it's it's giving Patreon. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I um, when I'm not acting, I write, and, and I was writing a lot, kind of before this stretch of acting bookings that emerged, kind of like halfway through the pandemic. I've been kind of like giving working actress, but before, but you know, several, like two years ago, I published like three things in art forum and like an essay in GQ. And I, I profiled John Waters. See, this is the other thing. I actually am a celebrity profiler, which people don't Mm. know. I've done it once. So, you know, it's not that big of a stretch. Um, la la la. Yeah. Like it's, um, I don't have any acting work like confirmed finance scheduled ready to go after all of this barbie noise dies down so i'll probably get back to the typewriter that being said i am a wga member so i will not be doing the screenwriting but there are many other things to write and yeah i can just do that for myself and figure it out. I, 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 I t- you know, girls always ask me, they're like, I want to be an actress. I want to be a model. I'm like, great. You should go for it, but make sure you have something else that is not contingent on getting chose. Mm. Um, you brought up, um, your profile of John Waters. Uh, and I just have to know, just sort of like, how did you prepare yourself for talking with, you know, this icon and like what was it about like you know preparing for this going into it being like i really want to know this about john waters and ask and then what were you surprised to learn um coming out of the interview 
I watched so many interviews that he had done. And I had, I also watched, of course, like all of the films of his that I hadn't seen. I'd seen most of them, but not all of them. And I don't know. I, I think that I could only write about him through the lens of my own interests and my own questions. And I came down to this fundamental question in sort of like observation that, especially watching his films, John Waters has broken every contemporary um, piety around um, political correctness. You know, he he has gotten edgy with race. He's gotten edgy with gender. He's gotten edgy with, he's like literally just blown, he, like no one is safe. Like if you're poor, there's a joke about it. If you're trans, there's a joke about it. If you're a person of color, there's a joke about it. If you're gay, if you're like, like whatever. Like he, he blames everyone. And I'm just like, and yet he is beloved, rightfully so. And yet people think that he's, an, you know, like funny, rightfully so. Like he has somehow avoided being canceled. And his his whole ethos is on paper so um, patently cancelable. Like there, there there are so many like you know like I, I can just like imagine like a bustle think piece that just goes through them all and like <laughs> destroys you know like ugh. But no, people don't, and they won't, and they don't dare. And I'm like, why is that? What is the secret sauce? Does John Waters have the secret, like, shield against getting canceled? I wanted to get to the bottom of that. And I kind of just let him talk. That's that's the thing. That's something that I brought to Talia on The Idol. If you want to get answers, like, pe- people fundamentally just want to talk about themselves. Yes. <laughs> <in right. words. laughs> as, as you two probably know. Um, you kind of just hang back and ask the very specific things you want and people will talk. John Waters definitely has done a lot of press and he says a lot of the same things over and over again. And I I know the things that he says over and over again. And I I just tried to push past those with specifics. And I think the specifics of, you know, the the specifics that I could dive into was actually, you know, around his um, portrayal of transness and like trans women, you know, there's the, you know, amazing, like, chick with a dick scene. I think it's in Pink Flamingos where, you know, there's a trans woman and she, like, flashes people in the park and they run away. You know, I I was, I asked him, not in a confrontational way, I was just like, I, I asked him about the actress and about his relationship to her. And it was so clear in the way that he spoke about her and she's still alive and they're still in contact, but he loves her and loved her. And that, that gag in that film was, was her idea. And they were trying to, you know, take the piss out of people's fear of that. And she was about to get like a sex change. And she's like, I just want to do this one good time because (laughs) I'm never going to be able to do this again. And the main thing that he said, which I took away, which it became kind of, it's like, like, I want to like tattoo it on my forehead. He's like, I only make fun of the things I love, not the things that I hate. I would also add to that, that if you're funny, you can kind of get away with, um, you know, 
the edgier echelons of humor, but he, he does it with love and he, you know, he was kind of like a hippie and a freak, but they were like making fun of hippies and freaks. If you laugh at yourself first, I mean, this is like, again, now I'm just quoting RuPaul. If you laugh <laughs> at yourself first, then you can bring the audience in to laugh at others. And I feel like that, I, I don't know, that, that gay, like mid, late 20th century sensibility is something that I try to hold onto mm-hmm. because it, it, it feel, it, I don't know, it, 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 it makes me feel safe in a way. It, it kind of clears the fear of the climate we live in and makes it all not so serious. I think you really it's, nailed it, though, when you said, yeah. like, it not, and I mean, not only is he very funny and, like, making fun of everybody, there's such a sense about his work, like, let's all have a good time. Like, there, there's, it's not like it's only for certain people and other people are left out in a way, even though it's picking targets. I, you're right. It's very specific to him, though. I can't really think of somebody else who really nails that feeling. Right. And, and I feel like there are so many contemporaries of his that are not as intelligent or sophisticated whose work has been dismissed because Mm -hmm. it's taking the piss out of marginalized groups. And he found a way to do it that not only, you know, resonated then, but like continues to resonate. (sighs) I love him so much. I think we Mm. can learn a lot of lessons from John Waters. I've got a, um, Maybe a weird question. Not weird. Interesting question. Because you were talking about, you know, rewatching these John Waters films and sort of seeing, you know, um, asking, you know, like coming from it from a trans perspective. Um, And I have to imagine, you know, like there's a lot of pieces of media that you've consumed that you've been like, I kind of like the trans representation in this. I hate it in this, et cetera. Is there something that you've seen that maybe you're a fan of that you were like, if you had the chance to sort of redo that character or come at it from a different perspective, something that you're like, I want to put the hard enough stamp on this and do it right. The only spicy letterbox review about like a living filmmaker that I've ever written. And I'd be on letterbox in like a silly way. Um, I love letterbox. Oh, it's yeah. it's so It's so funny. And like, I don't try to leave a serious review. You're just like, this movie was a gag. <laughs> um, Dress to Kill, mm. Brian De Palma. Mm. Like, spooky, tra- like, spooky tranny, psychotherapist <laughs> killer. I'm like, I'm, I literally wrote an open letter to Brian De Palma. I was like, let's do a remake. Mm. Let's get it on and pop in. Like, I'm ready. Are you ready? Like, <laughs> this is cool. We've just got to do it. A little like it's a great movie it's mm. you know tr- is it transphobic absolutely but i'm also kind of ready and down for you know depictions of trans people that are not a hundred percent redemptive or flattering or are particularly unflattering because like we've we've got the redemptive stuff i mean <laughs> another letterboxd um people this still comes up from time to time. I, the one letterbox review that I got in some like hot water for was my review of um, Save Todd Haynes. Oh yes, Julian, Julianne Moore. Mm. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was his first collab with Julianne Moore. Um, 
And what I said was this something akin to like this film it speaks more incisively to the experience of being queer than most things I can think of made in the past five years that have actual queer people in them. Like he, like, like I, I, I was like, Todd Haynes made a movie about like a white cis straight rich woman that feels more to me like the experience of being queer than most of these other things that are getting greenlit that are basically just queer in content, not in form. Like something like the 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 way that film shows and embodies a like a person who is in this world where something is wrong and it's coming from inside of them. And like this world is like warping and shifting around her and she's getting sicker and sicker and sicker and she doesn't know why. And it's isolating her from everyone and everything that she loves. And it's like taking her away from her biological family and she's becoming more endeared to this like cult of people that she doesn't know who are affirming that there's that to me is more like being gay than the prestige television show that has an ensemble of you know lgbt characters that are hitting the same redemptive sitcom beats as every other show it's like we just get our favorite show that stars you know straight or cis people but with trans characters and there's nothing, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, um, the queer experience is just more than surface level. It's like a, it's, it's, it's a feeling, it's a vibe. It changes the way you experience the world. It changes your senses. It's not just the surface. And I am eager for it. And it, it doesn't have to be like, artsy and weird and avant-garde i just like i i think that queer form is more interesting than queer content but the you know but like what queer form even is is up for debate i would just like to see the girls get on it to try to figure out like what that could be i'm particularly fascinated with movies that have no what you basically just said explicit gayness about them but seem to resonate to like a particular swath of queer people. Like, I don't know if you've seen Ordinary People recently with Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland, but it's mm-hmm. Timothy Hutton. His brother dies and he uh, they, he lives in the suburbs and he's traumatized by it. And he's like the unwanted kid and his relationship with the parents and his relationship with this therapist. I tons of specifically gay men, I feel like relate to that movie. I don't know what it is, but it's just, there's there's something about how it gets to. I'm alienated from these people, but I have this truth that needs to be explored and I believe in it and it's taking me away from some people and closer to other people. Anyway, it's what you were just, uh, that's very yes. interesting to me. No, I, I, uh, essence, like essences are more, they, they hit harder than story beats and yeah. linear mm-hmm. plots and, beginnings, middles, and ends. Like, I, I I think what's truly queer is, like, departing from once upon a time there was this, oh, no, a conflict happened. Oh, no, there's, like, that's, you know, like, the story structure that we know is just because of repetition and history is, like, the hetero story structure. 
I didn't go to film school or grad school, <laughs> but like, I, I, I just, I, I think some of, you know, I think a lot of the queer content that we are fed is a little obvious, not in, you know, like I, I love to see the girls booked, but on, on the level of storytelling, on the level of aesthetics, on the level of cinema, it's not, it, 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 it could be, it could go even further. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for being here, Hari. I mean, oh, yeah, that's it? yeah, we're we're like we're in and out. Oh, word. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you said so much. Literally, you said so much. I, I talk so much. I'm so, I, I, I yeah. going on. Loved no, it. we, we it. love it. We love it. We love it. Um, thank you for being here. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. And we cannot wait to see Barbie. Obviously, we haven't seen yeah. it yet. Oh, yeah. Cannot wait to see it. Cannot wait to see what you do next. I mean, I loved when you did. You know hopped in the theater like you're doing everything so yeah i can really can't wait to see what's next well if the screen actors guild goes on strike then i might be hopping back to the theater <laughs> <laughs> let's bring back a doll's house yeah <laughs> Part three. the doll's house <laughs> <laughs> let jessica chastain have it she has it <laughs> we will be right back with alex edelman Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. 
And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Our guest today for this special episode is one of our favorite storytellers. You know, a stand-up his writing, and his incredible one-man show, Just For Us, which started its Broadway run this month, and now he's joining the pod, Just For You. Welcome to Keep It, the hilarious and wonderful Alex Edelman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Congrats on the show, um, going to Broadway. Um, I saw it during one of its off-Broadway runs, and I say one of, because I feel like this show has been running forever uh, and has been at multiple theaters. Um, So can you tell us where it started um, and then where it's been since getting to Broadway? Like, how did you get to Broadway? I mean, it's got a long... I mean, I, I sometimes think of the show as, like, in two iterations. Like, there's one iteration of the show that was, like, sort of, like, a fringy hour of stand-up. So that started in 2018. And, like, I loved doing it, but it's not um, it's not what it is now. Um, and then... Oh, sorry, helicopter going over my head. They're looking for me. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> then there was a... Uh, then in 2020, I started putting together a new version of the show with like 40 minutes stripped out and a different 40 minutes or a different, like, uh, yeah, I sort of changed the show a lot in 2020, but to, to make a long, boring story short, started doing the show in 2018. The first iteration started doing the show in 2020 in the new iteration show took a two year nap pretty much. And then at the very, very, very end of 2021, started like obviously stopped from the beginning of 2020 to the end of 2021 beginning of 2021 started a run that was supposed to be three weeks but ended up being like you know like a year in new york and then we we yeah we got extended like seven times and kept moving to different theaters like we're like slightly bigger and now we've moved to broadway which has been like the craziest goddamn thing in the world now i assume it's exciting to get that uh, kind of opportunity, but at the same time, it means you've been priming the same material and jokes for a long time. Are you is a, any hemisphere of your brain dying to talk about literally anything else? Like just going up on stage, let me talk about whatever uh, the Mona Lisa or something, anything. Not to be like, not to be a downer, but not really because first of all, you do a thing that resonates with people, and you have a million interesting discussions about it. Like my show has has to do with like a lot of gray areas in between things that people care a lot about. Um, like Judaism and whiteness and religion and discourse and civility and various aspects of how we talk, um, you know, how we talk about politics and stuff like that. Like all of those things are really, really 
important things to me. And like, they wind up, uh, they wind up spurring lots of good conversations and the show changes every single night. And the reason I said, I don't want it to be, don't want to be a downer is because I worked on this show for four years with my best friend, a guy named Adam Brace, who is the show's director. He's directed all my solo shows and he died like six weeks before our show started on Broadway. So, you know, this is the last thing I get to do with him. And this is its sort of most beautiful shot, right? Like it's the most beautiful run it's ever going to experience. It's going to be, it's moving to Broadway. So if I'm ever like tired of this show, I, you know, I hear his sort of like, he sort of haunts me. He's like, you better not be fucking tired of the show. You better be like, and also every night there are things that you have to change the show. The show is always like in a state of getting a little bit better, but, but yeah, by the way, Louis, I say that like, I, uh, I go to the comedy cellar all the time and like try new shit out. So maybe that's how I'm like working, working the kinks out while I do like my, like my main job, like, yeah. Sorry. Wrong answer. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Um, I get it. No. So this show is, you know, essentially about you going to sneaking into like a white supremacist, like Nazi meeting. Uh, and then what comes out of that, you know, is this conversation about, you know, whiteness, Judaism, et cetera. Um, what was your comedy like? prior to this and was it always sort of you know i don't know investigative for lack of a better term or was um this just the first time you were like i feel like doing something like this um and then the act of doing it was like oh this sort of story spilled out of you um i mean my comedy has always pretended not to be political in in service of being political. So my comedy has always been about like, my first show was called millennial. And it was about, about generation intergenerational warfare. This is before the word millennial was like a super annoying buzzword. So my first, that was in 2014. And people cared about it because like, I love finding things that everyone can talk about. Like people of color, uh, White people, Jews, non-Jews, Democrats, Republicans, all people, young people, like everything, everyone is interested in, you know, intergenerational warfare and whether or not, you know, and like generational divides. And my second show was about how people are very lonely. It was called Everything Handed to You. And, uh, and so like I've always done stuff that like, but also all of the bits are bits that I wrote and developed in comedy clubs. Like I want my stuff to be comedy and also be like, like thought PC without ever, I want to do thought pieces that aren't ever actually thought PC. So like, uh, so I guess my comedy has always been like, I don't know if investigative has been the right word. I wrote, but definitely like journalism-y. Mm-hmm. Like my comedy has always been a little bit like journalistic, but there's also like stupid jokes about like my shoe size and stuff like that, that not in this show, but I mean like in my comedy generally, but this is definitely like my most with heavy air quotes. You can't see me doing it because podcast, but like mature, like mature. This is my most mature work and I'm super proud of it. I'm so proud that this show is mature, but like, uh, but yeah, my comedy, I've always liked the blend of stuff like high, low, serious, not serious, political, non-political, accessible and specific, you know, like all that stuff. I was looking at a list of the very famous people who have come to see this show. 
And some of them are like friends of yours and you've gotten advice from them or whatever. But like when someone like Elaine May or Steve Martin is at the show, are you somebody who's eager to like seek out a response from those people? Or is it just, okay, they're there and that's, you know, accolade enough? No. <laughs> I, I need everything, Vertel. I need everything. I, mean, I, I want them to love the show and adopt me and raise me as their own. <laughs> And decide that I'm, you know, I'm mid-carnated, you know. <laughs> but, like, uh, yeah, when Steve Martin came to the show and when Seinfeld came to the show, like, your whole body just goes, like, you know, it's a, it's a crazy. Nathan Lane came to opening on Monday and it was just, like, it was, like, I love comedians. I love comedians. I mean, I love actors, but, like, comedians and writers. Like, those are the ones that, as proud as I am to be, like, performing my show on Broadway, I'm so excited to have, like, written a Broadway show, if that makes sense. Like, I love people who write their own stuff and have written. Like, if you think about all those people, the thing that they have in common is that they're writers. And so I just love a writer. I love a genius writer. And I always seek out, like, craft advice from those writers. So I've had really good advice from Seinfeld and Steve Martin and... Billy Crystal gave great notes. And so like I asked them for notes, like that's what I want. I want a little tiny bit of their wisdom to steal and squirrel away for later, later use. And I get it from them. I won't let them leave without it. We had to like tie Steve Martin to a chair until he gave us all. all. (laughs) It's interesting to think though, that like the, um, the average viewer may shift from someone like a comic to now, like a celebrity who goes to the show, maybe more Broadway oriented, like, Nathan Lane or something. Like, I hope Patty Lapone gives you feedback on this show. You know what I'm saying? Oh my God. Patty Lapone be like, don't join equity. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> Fuck equity. Don't join equity. But you know what is so weird to be part of this Broadway community all of a sudden where like everyone knows who like Donna Murphy is. Like right. I'm learning like a lot of names I had never heard. They're like, you don't know. Like Mayor Winningham was at one of our early shows and I was like, Fuck oh. yes. I mean, like, I love Mayor Winningham. Like but you know, you know who's like one of the show's biggest supporters is. Do you know Cherry Jones? Uh, I'm a human of being. Course. Of course. Have I seen 24? Yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. Did she, did she date Sarah Paulson for four years? Yes. Come on. Yes. Yes. Our president. Cherry's, Cherry has seen the show like three times or something like that. And like I and I fucking love Cherry Jones, and she always like. And she, we went to go see a play together. Like I'm like decent. Like it's. We are the weirdest, like, couple. We, like, go places together now. We'll, like, go to play. <laughs> what? We went to a play, and halfway through, she leaned over. She's like, this fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, she is an intimidating person. I'm not, I, like, to hang out with Cherry Jones would be, I, I would be in my head. Yeah. She's the nicest, nicest woman on the planet. I, I mean, like, there are so... All I'm saying is that, like, I love the com- the community of comedians that I've been introduced to through doing comedy for, like, a decade. But I'm also, like, pretty excited about this community of, like, Broadway people. It's a little insular. Like, they're, it feels like they're very dedicated to, like, you know, like, it feels like there are things where someone will tell me about, like, this really intense drama. And then they'll walk away and I'll have to go ask someone else what names they were, like... Like, so someone's, someone's, like, I don't know anyone's name. And they're like, we don't know that the capitalization on that show is X amount of money. And I'm like, how do you know that? They're like, it's public information. And like, it's the crazy, 
most insular <laughs> community. And I love its little attendant dramas and celebrities that are only celebrities in that community. And like I said to like the PR people, I was like, I want to do every Broadway PR show that has 54 listeners. Like I don't want to, I don't want to do anything big on bra like I don't want to do any big Broadway podcasts so like that's great because just you know there are no big Broadway podcasts but like what you <laughs> like, I was like I want to do like some guy has a microphone in his mom's basement and he just talks about how much he you know like hates Chicago the city and the show <laughs> and like I want to do that guy's crazy podcast I'm like that's um, what they're, and they're like great done perfect <laughs> but to be fair, that, that would be all. That, I mean, those aren't just like regular comedy fans. Like that is a new demographic for you. I mean, and how many people get to break yeah. through to those people who were just you know sitting around like talking about how devastating Leopold stat was or whatever? But they, you're right. They all and they care about theater. Like I care about theater. Like I don't. I'm. I'm really. I'm more earnest than I think the average com- comedy fan is, but more cynical than the average theater fan is. Which means I'm in this like weird middle space between the two. And which is fine. Like my show is more comedic than most theater shows and more theatrical than most comedy shows, but the blend seems to have just enough to service both sides. And so like, I think Ira, like that question you asked like three questions ago is like a good question. Cause like, I don't know if it's, if my stuff's like investigative, but the person that I am have, I think I've always wanted to go everywhere and meet everyone and do everything. And so, like, having that, I guess, reflected in my stand-up or reflected in my show, solo show, like, actually very much is who I am. Like, mm-hmm. I want to meet everyone. I want to, like... And not just celebrities, but, like, the weirdos. Like, I want to meet the weirdos. And, like... Um, they are the weirdos, working out. to be honest. <laughs> for the record. <laughs> right. the, celebrities, the celebrities are the weirdos, for the record. Well, but, those, are the be- uh, those are the best ones, Ira, right? You've met, you've met a million celebrities. You're like, God, you're fucking weird. <laughs> um, I have a question about your writing because you've written, you know, solo shows for yourself. Um, and I know you had like a brief stint on like a writing on a sitcom once before. But, you know, do you envision yourself writing you know, you love the theater or you love comedy. Like, do you envision yourself writing a comedy film or like writing a comedic show for other people? Or do you have any interest in writing for write characters and other people? Would you rather just sort of do comedy, you know, for yourself? A thousand percent. I want to write for, I didn't get into storytelling to just sort of give one perspective my whole life. I really want to, I want to like, you know, the most horrifying advice that's ever given to a writer is write what you know, because people are always like, oh, you're a farmer from Minnesota or you're um, or you're a black man from uh, from Seattle or you're a. And so they're like, you should write about that. But what really that means is like, if you know shame, write shame. If you know anger and insularness, yearning for something else, write that like and so for me, I understand, like, because of my, like, Orthodox Jewish background, like, what I love is, like, um, the struggle between, you know, modern and traditional. Like, that's a thing that I understand. Or the struggle between the 
community and the individual. Like that's something that I understand. And like, I've always wanted to write about, you know, like, like the book I desperately want to be part of adapting is a book from childhood uh, that I read as a kid called the ear, the eye and the arm, which is like an Afrofuturist book. Cause like, it's got this, it's, it's got this beautiful understanding of the intersection between traditional and um, future, you know, like tr- traditional and modern. And it's this beautiful fable and set in like Zimbabwe in the year 3000. I was, and I was always like, I want to adapt that book. And very naturally and very, of course, validly, my, you know, the people that I work with were like, um, no, like, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like at some point I'll find the right creative partners to, to do something like that with, but no, I desperately want to like expand the, the universe of like the stuff that I talk about. And like, I think that sort of drive to, to actually understand people who aren't me, like part of that is, um, is wanting to, uh, you know, I desperately, I love writing for other people. I really, I, I spend a lot of, I spend a lot more time writing for other people than I do writing for myself, even in the show. My favorite thing, my favorite jokes to make, my favorite things to talk about are the people that aren't me. Like I just, my whole show actually, people are like, that's such a personal show. And I'm like, yeah, but I would say that like 80% of the show is me talking about other people, which is so, which doesn't mean it's not personal. So like, yeah, like I desperately want to write like plays and books and fucking ballet and opera and like everything. I don't know how to write music, so that's going to be a real problem. But like, I, I really, really... <laughs> I want to do, I'm sure, Ira, you're the same. You, you guys, you both like, I don't know, right? Like you guys also kind of. Well, I, I would say that we, yes, we enjoy writing for other people, but we're like fr- Frida Kahlo, most inspired by ourselves, ultimately. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking brilliant. That's uh, true. Uh, I was going to say, so <laughs> it's interesting that you are just interested in writing, period, and it doesn't have to be a comedian? Are there people like songwriters or people who specifically are not funny that really appeal to you and uh, oh based God. on what they do? Oh my God. Regina Spector is, of course. Mm, is unbelievable. I love like Ben growing up. I was such a big Ben Folds guy. Like I'd say that Ben Folds was such a huge part of my life and upbringing. And um, who, who else? Adam Duritz and Counting Crows. Like I, you know, Oscar nominee. Yes. Is he? Oh, that's right. For accidentally in love. You are correct. Yes. Um, but also like, um, even people who write like music for films, one of my closest pals is, is Benj Pasek. And I love Benj Pasek and his work is absolutely phenomenal. And, um, and yeah, musicians who write small. Oh, does, did, were you, were either of you guys bright eyes people? That's exactly our, that's exactly our, like, we're 36. Like, we, we, you were in high school, Bright Eyes occurred. Yes. Yeah. Bright Eyes was that, that, al- <clears throat> that Casadega album has, like, yes. five incredible songs that are all, like, gorgeous things about other people. Four wins, if the break man turns my way. Like, I love, and, uh, and I even use, whenever I get asked to, like, teach storytelling or solo shows, I always use the song Walking in Memphis as a template because it's such a great template for a solo show. I won't bore your listenership with it, but like truly Which version? It's not the show version, baby. It's the Mark wow. Cohen version. Get oh, the yes, show not. <laughs> it's the only share version I can't get on board with. It's like... <laughs> 
I love Cher and I love her covers so much. I just hate that cover because the song is about being an anonymous weirdo who goes to like play piano in a bar in Memphis and he walks in and they're like, do you want to get on stage and sing with us? And like, you can just imagine Cher when she's doing the cover, she's like, you know, they bring her to the piano bar and the lyrics should be like, is that fucking Cher? You know, like it really. (laughs) (laughs) No one really sounds like that, but her. Yeah. Uh Yeah. (laughs) There's a line where they're like, tell me, are you a Christian child? And Mark Cohen goes, ma'am, I am tonight. And like, if if it was Cher, it'd be like, tell me, are you a Christian child? And she's like, you've read my Wikipedia. Like, you know, exactly. (laughs) I'm very well known. Yeah. Yeah. I have an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does Cher have an Oscar? Oh, for Moon for um yeah. Moonstruck. Yep, eighty seven. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a special connection to that song only because I first heard it in the X Files. That's that's where she like debuted it. Wait, Cher? Maybe possibly. Yes, there's a fifth season episode, like the postmodern Prometheus, which is sort of like their um eraser head elephant man episode it's done in complete black and white and it ends with the like um elephant man-ish like character like um dancing on the stage with Mulder and scully and Cher um singing walking in memphis ira i have listened to probably (laughs) eight or nine episodes of this show in the past year and i know for a fact that this is at least the third time that you've referenced the X Files. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, excuse me. We, it's like fifty first dates over here. We have our five references and we keep making them. Okay, but yeah, but I mean, I'm, he, not, I'm surprised that Lewis hasn't brought up the carpenters yet. Okay, uh, yeah, no, so. I do have the shirt on. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I genuinely like. I was, I because I, I remember the first time I heard, it, I was like, "That's interesting." And then the second time I heard it, I was like, "I wonder if Ira, if there's like an X Files component to the show that I don't understand." <laughs> Just a really short memory. That's yes. it. Or yeah. only a specific yeah. memory for like eight things we grew up with. Yes. We've done we've Love done it. this for almost 300 episodes. I think that we have we are we're in a circular pattern of everything that we've discussed ever. Right. Who were your who were your guys though? Even though I feel like I know it, but like who were your who were your song? Like if you had to pick, who were your and not just song people, who were your writing song people? Like, well, well, I, I'm, I, I mean, like everybody who's my age would say this probably. I mean, gay or um, women, but like it was Alanis first, and then I got into uh, Liz Fair, and then Amy Mann. And Amy Mann, I think, is the greatest songwriter who ever lived. Really? Yes. Um, I just, she's like you in that I feel like she's just inspired by other people. It's not just here's a purely autobiographical moment. Like she uses empathy to explain other people and like help help bring you into things like a mental illness, whatever. She writes about things I'm interested in. Namely, what the fuck is up with that person? I mean, I love that song, Charmer. Oh, and, and kind of an underrated album, actually. But I love the song, Charmer. I think so, too. And I mean, it came, like, I was listening to... You guys did an episode with, like, Connie Britton, who I think is, like... Oh, Slay Boots. Mm-hmm. Yes, we love her. She is fucking cool. And it's just, like... um. I can't remember who she was talking about. There was what there, but there was some musician where she was like, "This is right after in um, someone had died." I think it was Anne H. And um, 
And you guys were talking about, I guess it was like, there was a spate of like late 90s, early 2000s, female solo singer-songwriters that was just like, and it was country, it was like Mary Chapin Carpenter, and like, um, there, it was... uh, A ton of people, like Jewel, and uh, yeah, yeah, who else was happening around that time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there there were a bunch of, like, even like Liz Fair, by the way, who like, did only like three or four albums, or like... Maybe even fewer than that, but they were like that song "Extraordinary" by Liz Fair is a, is a fucking bop and it's a perfect perfect pop song. I love any. Mm. I think I listen to songs just desperately looking for jokes. I'm I want to see my mm. spot with like I love songs where there's just like where the writing. There's a band called Guster that I loved growing up so much, and it's Absolutely. a bop. I know Guster. You know I Guster. Never- well, I'm from Milwaukee, but I've famously never seen Guster because I think I talked about this when Ben Folds came on the show. Um, ben Folds is one of my songwriters, by the way. Um, Wait, you guys had Ben Folds on the show? Yeah, we had ben Folds what, what I remember on. about that was Ben Folds said specifically he picked the worst era in music history, which was the late 80s. And we talked about hair metal bands anyway. <laughs> yeah. wait, um, wait, 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 wait. What was Ben? Sorry, interrupted you, Ira. It was okay. Um, no, Guster played what big one. I told him the story about how like there was this year uh, at Summerfest in Milwaukee where I used to work. Um, Guster was playing at the same time as Benfold Five, and I did not know who Guster was at the time. Uh, I've since found out, but there was this whole big debate between the people in high school. They were like, um, "Are we going to see Benfolds? Are we going to see Guster?" It was like, "Well, I'm seeing Benfolds. I don't know what Guster is," um, but. Yeah, I know Gusta. I love comedy in songwriting. That's why I would say mine is probably like, I don't know, Missy Elliott, you know? Like Duh. for me, wow. like just like so hearing funny. rap music growing up and then like having like someone who was writing it but was like, you know, like the polar opposite of, you know, sort of like the East Coast, West Coast um, battle like going on. She was just like really fucking funny. Um, oh her Her stuff is really good to me and i'm like i'm like a Gun fan because you know i'm like a sad faggot so um guys it's been a rough year it's gonna get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee.
I love Guster. So I opened for them at Carnegie Hall last year. They they sent me a message going, "Do you want?" Or Ryan Miller, who's the lead singer of Guster, was like, "I heard you're a fan." And I was like, "I'm a huge fan." He's like, "Would you want to open for us at Carnegie Hall?" And I was like, "Yes." And then they let me sing a song with them on stage. Like, wow, your song on public. Okay. I never will again. But like, <laughs> it's on it's on. Um, it's on YouTube. It, the song is called Jesus on the Radio. And my girlfriend at the time wasn't able to be there, but she was watching the video. And she said, you look like a baby. You look like Because I'm like bouncing up and down the whole time. Like I'm singing. She's like, you look like a toddler who's happy. And I was like, yeah, no, I was so happy. It was like the best thing that ever happened to me. It was so fucking cool. You probably him. never could have... Get, I mean, like, who would have ever guessed that comedy would take you to that? That's, I mean, you, that must be bone-chilling. There are so many... Like, I've started calling them side missions. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, getting to do a podcast, you like, is a side mission. Getting to, like... You know, I did a Q&A the other day with Josh Groban at the 92nd Street Y, and it was, like, fucking cool. Like, he's actually hysterical, and he's... So fun. He's so funny and so nice and so thoughtful. And like halfway through, I was like, this is a side mission. Like, this is great. Like, you know, meeting Steve Martin, that's a side mission. Like, I don't know. But yes, comedy is great for side missions. I love Josh Groban. I love him and Sweeney. So have you guys had him on the podcast? Because he would be the best podcast guest. I met him once like 10 years ago. And what I remember him talking about, well, it was bizarre. It was like at the Renaissance Hotel or something. He was talking about how he was at a Bjork concert and he was too scared to meet her. I'm like, imagine if like a superstar just waiting in the wings and then doesn't have the nerve to greet you. That said, if it's Bjork though, I'm sorry, baby, you should be intimidated. Sorry, that's like Mozart (laughs) up there. (laughs) I'm going to get angry tweets for this. I've never said this out loud before. I don't I don't fully get the Bjork thing. Well, what I'm going to do is send you a list of songs that will help ameliorate Please. what you just did to Please. my podcast, me Lewis. I and know. yeah. I know. Lewis, but you will I've, learn. I've heard you I look and I know Bjork is a like I I just like I love so I love Bjork. I just don't understand why Bjork is like this and like just to pick another Icelandic artist, I know there's more than two, but like Sigur Ross is like not because like <laughs> why is why why Bjork? Like is it like clearly the art is incredible and like but like is it so virtuosic that it's like you know? I would argue yes. I mean, this is a longer discussion. We can have another time. But also Bjork, you have to remember was it, was a was a <laughs> yes, right. You will, you will pass away. But yes. she was also a child celebrity in Iceland. Like, like got a record deal when she was eleven, and so really? she she has this legacy of being like a very known prodigy before she became an electronic artist and all these other things. So. I just don't know it. I just I'm not. I just like I just like missed it. It's one of those things where like I am. The, I'm the craziest fan of auteurs, though. Like Beck, I opened for Beck mm. for a little while on one oh, of his. Oh, that's tours. amazing! And I gotta watch him. And I had had a bad experience opening for Ryan Adams before that. I I like opening for musicians. I think it's a good thing for comedians to do, and it's hard, which I think is a really good reason to do it, actually. But like, fans actually love it because who would you rather see a comedian you've never heard of or a band you've never heard of? Most people would actually, when they th- think about it, like enjoy a comedian more. And like Beck does everything. Like Beck sits down and he writes the songs and then he makes this, like he does it all himself. And so like, I have respect for like a spe- for like specific artists who do, who do 
certain things. But sometimes I like feel like there will be like an oeuvre. Like I've just missed Bjork's oeuvre. Like I don't know mm. about her. So wait quickly, what happened with Ryan Adams? He just like wasn't very nice. Like that truly is the like he was just kind of a just kind of like mean to 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 me and his crew and he wasn't drinking which is very admirable but he was he did that thing where he like enforced some maniac like a maniacal thing on everyone else to never ever be drinking so like these guys were all like mm. drinking in secret and like there were weird like dramas that he had with like lighting people and sound people and like he had a pinball machine on tour that only he was allowed to play and it was like <laughs> it was a very, and he would and he was like just a kind of just like a not a very nice man and it left a really like sour taste in my mouth for musicians and then like Beck genuinely Beck who I never met sort of called me up out of nowhere and was like, you want to come, come work for us? And I was like, please. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Ryan, although Ryan, I don't know that it's a secret anymore that Ryan was, was, uh, unpleasant. I don't want to pile on someone who has been, you know, no, this is a pro Mandy Moore podcast. So, yes. Oh, uh, yes. also pro so, Liz Fair. Liz Fair has similar yeah, quotes about yeah. it. Yeah. I did. So. I did. I didn't know that. I didn't, <laughs> I knew about Mandy, but I didn't know about that was fair. And I'm very big. I'm not like dog, dog piling on someone, but like he was, it, it was just, it was really, really bad. He knew I was a big Gary Shandling fan and Shandling mm. and Ryan were friends. And so once he was angry at me in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania over some, <laughs> something, and he went, Gary Shandling would have hated you. Good lord, what? (laughs) Although he did apologize for it. His band was like, you can't say that, man. (laughs) You know, I have have some, you know, sympathy for him. I think he's gone. I think he's, he's not entirely well. And I think he goes, goes through things, but, but, um, and please don't clip this one bit out to make it I, make it seem like I just just talked about. <laughs> Contrive a little graphic with you in boxing gloves. It's like Alex Edelman destroys Ryan <laughs> Adams. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what was the pinball game? What was the pinball game? Come on, Adams family. I've got no, but I've got I've got a picture of it somewhere. Hold on, let me just search my <laughs> Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> the Harrisburg Files. I want it to be like. An Indiana Jones pinball game. No, it was it was some it was a band. It was a band of some kind. I think it was like um I think it was like some sort of uh ACDC pinball game. Oh, that's pretty rad. Which was it was actually pretty rad. And he's an amazing I, uh, just you know. The thing a- about ACDC that I learned is that also men are from Australia. I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought it was like people named Nicole and Kylie and stuff. No, there's a lot of other stuff going on. That is so fucking funny. It yes. would not shock you to know that I'm an ACDC fan. What? I am not. That- Please. What, with the two songs you know of theirs, go ahead and name four songs. For the, <laughs> okay. First of all. Bells, rock, I- yeah, go on. I love um, Highway to Hell. I love. Oh, okay. um, oh, do you like Like a Virgin too? Let's get a little deeper. Whoa. Okay, first of I all, mean, I love I love high voltage, okay? And okay. hard as a rock. Okay, we can hash this out some other time. Is back in is back 1977 in is a very good album. All right. What's that? You shook me up. I like ACDC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I like ACDC. Mm-hmm. I like ACDC because I read a lot of Chuck Klosterman 
and oh. all he ever talks about is like 80s rock bands. Oh, so you saw the words in text, and that means you're a fan of the band. I got it. Well, Wait. I saw them in high school, so I started listening to them. Oh, okay. Are you a Chuck, are you a big Chuck Klosterman fan? I'm a huge. Yeah. I think if Chuck Klosterman had to write for uh, Chuck Klosterman is like if David Foster Wallace was forced to write for New York Magazine, like yeah. I really, <laughs> really think like like he's. I like Chuck Klosterman because he's not always like doing backflips to show his intellect, but there's so many ideas in the in the in the thing like i'm a big ch- i'm a big chuck is chuck Osterman like around does he like do stuff he's around he Great just question. had a new book come out um called the 90s i did not know that i've only read of yeah. course you know sexual and cocoa puffs which everyone has read yeah but he's only like 51 like that sex drugs yeah. and cocoa puffs is like over 20 years old like it's crazy how young he was when he produced some of that stuff wow have, have you have you guys been following this the someone has people have been like recently uncovering the susan sontag um carmine palia uh oh oh i mean Su- yes. susan sontag those interviews are un- unbelievable to watch she is so nasty and also it's like then you start <laughs> if you look into her history with like annie Leibovitz, there's like dubious qualities to it and did you know that Kate Blanchett's performance in Tar is largely based off Susan Sontag. Are you serious? Yes. Which makes total sense. I can't believe I didn't intuit it myself. I can't believe she had to tell me. Or Do us. you know that Susan Sontag joke in Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson? Does this... No. That, okay. No. So Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, for those of you that may not know, was a, was a, music, was a, rock, was a rock musical that basically crawled so that Hamilton could fly. Which was, it was like, at the public first, right? It was, it was at the public first, and it was directed by Alex Timbers, who is not just a genius, but also a sweet man who's a creative consultant on our show, um, who stepped in after Adam died. And, and I love Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. And there's a joke in there. There's a song in there called Illness is Metaphor, which is be, um, uh, because Susan Sontag wrote an essay about how her cancer was a metaphor for love or something. And... Um, the song is about is about that. It's basically a song version of that with these clear allusions to Susan Sontag. And the last line of the song, though, and this is by the late Michael Friedman, is, and it produced such a reaction, I've never seen this from any audience ever. The last line of the song was, but Susan Sontag's dead, so I guess her cancer wasn't metaphorical after all. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it was such... A, I've never heard a, it wasn't even a gasp. It was just a full, like, it was an audible recoil from the audience. And it was such a, like, something about it, it where it was contextualized in the show was so beautifully done that I just, like, it, I don't know. I think about that joke probably once a week. Like, it's a fucking brilliant joke. It's so that good. Is- very, very memorable. Also, I think yeah. Susan Sontag, who was a, a certain kind of cynic, ultimately would have really enjoyed it. I, yeah. I think that pe- yeah, I think we spend a lot of time offended for people who who would really actually love jokes at their expense. So. Also, Camille Paglia like had a very awful comment about Anita Hill. So fuck her. Wait, no, what oh, she, she sucks. Have- she sucks. She sucks. Yeah. I don't know anything about her. I had, by the way, Susan Sontag. <laughs> I've never heard of Camille Paglia. And I was like, I've never heard of Camille Paglia. Like, am I missing some green right <laughs> like, She I, was like, genuinely, guys, like, Lewis, should I know, should I know more about Camille Paglia? Should I be pretending to know who, who she is? Because I just don't know the work. Oh, no, abridged version. She was somebody who, uh, in the 80s, 
was sort of like the the neck, like a, a sort of like in your face brash version of a new kind of feminist. So it sort of felt like she was this essential perspective. But then ultimately, it's like it's the it's the kind of person who's like going for scare headlines and is I don't know about ingenuine, but was it like Lizzie Wurzel or was it like or was it legitimately like you know she just is somebody who had a heyday and then immediately everybody was over it. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. Also, she looks like a French Cherry Jones. So take that as you will. <laughs> Fantastic. Sorry for Alex. The, oh, the, no. <laughs> this was such a fruitful conversation. Thank you for yeah. talking about not just your awesome comedy, but also everything else. Rarely I'm, do people just go with us. I'm so sorry for the for the ADHD-ness of the conversation, but I will say that I do I do really love the podcast, especially when you have like, you know... Andrea Riseborough on, like you guys have such wonderful guests, and I'm so, um, I'm so, uh, I'd say I'm honored actually to be subject in person to to Ira's X Files, uh, to Ira's X Files. Uh, <laughs> I consider you the comedy Andrea Riseborough. You're a talent mutant, just like her. And not, and not to um, and not to lay it on thick, but when Ira came to the show at the Soho, I was really, uh, in one of our off-Broadway runs, I was really, really excited. And, um, and if either of you guys want to, want to come back and see it on Broadway, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be so thrilled. It's a really, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm a fan. Oh, well count on it. I'll be there. Yeah. I love the show and I love you. So uh, yeah, I'll come see it again. I got to see it on Broadway. Yeah. You got to see it in the nice, in the, in the nice house, in the big house. So, yeah. I mean, it's not like doing it in a prison, but yes, like, yeah, come see it on the <laughs> Well, that's our episode. Thank you to Hari Neff. Thank you to Alex Edelman. Thank you to my favorite problem child, Louis Fratel, <laughs> for being here. That's an ACDC song and a horrible movie. Yeah. Oh, but first of all, the sequel I prefer. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Did you know at the at the beginning of the movie Cape Fear, they are watching the movie Problem Child in the theater, and that's where you start to realize Robert De Niro is a crazy person. Anyway, Problem Child is in a Martin Scorsese movie. Moving on. <laughs> I think I've seen Cape Fear once, and I think that most of my memory of Cape Fear is from the Sideshow Bob episode of The Simpsons. Right, which is a fabulous episode of The Simpsons that, believe it or not, I have seen. But um, watch it again for Juliette Lewis. That is a five-star performance. Uh, all right. Well, that's our show this week. We will see you, as usual, next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroote and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Hey, listeners. We want to tell you about another podcast. Believe it or not. From our friends at KCRW, Los Angeles Public Radio, it's called The Treatment. 
Host Elvis Mitchell, whom I used to work with at MovieLine.com in the year of 2010, is a film critic, entertainment insider, and documentary producer. His guests on The Treatment include some of the most interesting, influential, and intersectional creatives in the world of entertainment, fashion, sports, and the arts. Hear directly from tastemakers who are weaving the very fabric that forms popular culture as they discuss the catalysts of their creativity. Recent guests on The Treatment include, wow, look at these people, Lawrence Fishburne, Jordan Peele, Janelle Monet. Chris Red, Maya Rudolph, Guillermo del Toro, Jesus, Jason Siegel. Too much talent, arguably. Listen to The Treatment from KCRW wherever you get your podcasts.